We're going to be continuing on in our study of uh, Ephesians today. We'll be in chapter 1, starting in verse 11. And uh, believe it or not, we're going to try to get through four whole verses today, which for us is a lot. So we do have some sort of a schedule. Uh, Advent is coming, so we have to <laughs> get things back in order. So we're going to be going through verse 14. I haven't said that already. And the... Uh, the reality is that this, these verses, as we've mentioned before, 3 through 14, are this, this wonderful doxology, this uh, liturgy of praise to God. I mean, verse 3 starts out, praise be to the God and Father, so that's why it gets that name. But the idea of all that is found in these few verses, it's just, if you could take what's here and comprehend it, understand it, live it out, allow the truth that is in here to sink into your heart, just these few verses, it would absolutely transform your life. And I don't want to make it about you, because we'll see here it's not about us, but on a practical perspective, or from a practical point of view, this stuff is written so that the believer would believe it and live their life accordingly. You're going to see this phrase, we're going to see again, of what it means to be in Christ. It's this phrase that's repeated like 10 or 11 times in this passage, depending on your translation, in Christ or in him. And this is all about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ as believers. So as we read through these things, I'm not going to go back and touch on all the other blessings that we have. I do encourage you, if you haven't heard them, go back and listen to those sermons, study through this text as you do that, and just receive the truth of the, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But as we finish up today, um, the things that we're going to talk about all have, they're not just meant to be theological concepts out here. They're meant to be truths that are received in the heart, that are comprehended in the mind, and they're lived out in the body. So at the risk of praying too much today, which I don't think we're going to, I'm going to pray briefly before we dive into the Word because I just can't preach without praying first. And so Let's pray, and we'll dive into this text and see what the Lord wants to teach us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who redeems and rescues, that you sent your son Jesus, and that you, by faith in him, that we can be called the faithful in Christ Jesus, that you give us grace and peace, that you teach us all the wonderful mysteries that you have given us in him. So we ask for your, just your power to work through your word today that it is your spirit who teaches us, that we would engage you in your word and walk with you in a manner worthy of this wonderful gospel by which we're all saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here we go. In verse 11 it says, In him, the context for that is the last sentence says, uh, under one head even Christ. So in him is Christ. In Christ, in him, we also were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory." So, first off, in him, this concept of being in Christ by faith, what it means to the blessings that we have because of Christ, and not just this whole idea of being in him. 
this identity that we have. Where do I get who I am? Well, it's in this person, this risen and exalted Christ. In him, it says what? We were also chosen. Some versions may also say we're heirs or we're made heirs. Uh, the verbiage there is this passive. It's this idea of the, the receiver is not responsible for the action. So we were chosen. That is an action that was received upon us. Chosen or made heirs. Then it says, having been predestined. Okay, so here we go with predestination again, right? Just sighing or whatever. So it's in here, so we're going to talk about it. But I'm going to frame it a little bit with this concept of when we, for those of you all who are like, what does predestination mean, blah, 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 and if you've been on this debate or been on this discussion, everybody gets their minds wrapped around it or wrapped around the axle of it, the reality is that this text in particular and other texts teach that we were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformance, excuse me, in conformity with the purpose of his will. So what does that mean? It's always, often, sometimes easy to say, okay, it says we're predestined, so what does it mean? And so what do I do with it? The idea is that to predestine means to set out beforehand. So the idea that God chose beforehand, before we were around, before the foundation of the world, to do what? Well, earlier, it's to adopt us as his children. But in here, predestined, we were chosen or given an inheritance. So what is this inheritance? Well, children receive an inheritance from their parents. It's something that they get that when their parents pass away, it's what the parents pass to their children. But it's given only to those who are actually children. You could be adopted in and made an heir, but only given to children, not given to random strangers. So this idea of being predestined is, uh, Jake once, we were talking about this in Life Group, I don't even know when, a while ago. I don't even know what book we were talking about. I, we're in Romans right now, but it takes us a long time to go through a book in Life Group. If you imagine a doorframe, and on one side of the doorframe is the unbeliever. And on their side of the door, they, they see their sin, they see the invitation of the gospel, they see that there is a holy God and that they are sinful, that there is a God who is calling them to himself, and it is the invitation of the gospel, that you are, a, you are a sinner, you are created in God's image, you are a sinner who has fallen, and there is a holy God to whom we are accountable for our sin. And then the invitation, of course, is come to me, all her weary and heavy burdened. It is uh, anyone who cries out on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is repent and come to me. That is the gospel, right? We're going to get into that more in a minute. But that's on one side of the doorframe. It's the invitation to the unbeliever to, by faith, receive what God has done, repent from their sins, and turn to a holy God to save them. That's on one side of the door. When you walk through the doorframe of faith, you're a believer. And all these incredible things become true. And if you turn around and look on the back side of that doorframe, you get all of these truths that, we're have, that we have here, some of these spiritual blessings, right? That you, are, um, that you were predestined, that you were chosen beforehand, that you are, uh, you've been adopted, you have redemption, you have forgiveness, you've been, uh, that he's lavished us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery that we're now in Christ, that we are now heirs of, Christ, of God, that we... All these things are true of the believer. And so the doctrine of predestination is always given in the Bible as a comfort to those who are saved, not as a condemnation to those who are not. They're already under condemnation because of their sin. It is a comfort to those who are saved that God knows what he's doing, that he chose me from before the foundation of the world. Um, oftentimes I think we get wrapped around this because <clears throat> we read a verse, predestined, and we think, oh, so is there no free will? Do I not have a choice in the matter? And the, one of the problems when you read the Bible and I become the focus of my uh, application or of my interpretation is that 
the purpose of this passage and every other passage in the Bible is to the praise of the glory of God, not for my own mental contentment. That is not why this is written. It's written as a comfort. And so Paul dealt with this. I just want to read briefly in Romans 9, which is Romans 9, 10, 11, some of the hardest passages in the Bible to uh, interpret. Talking about the sovereign choice of Israel, what's going to happen with the Jews as a people. You said that all Israel will be saved. How does it work out? I encourage you to dive into that. We're not going to dive into it now. But he does in Romans 9, 14 say this, because he's answering some of these questions that people are going to have. Because he does all throughout Romans asking these questions and then answering them in this kind of didactic method. Romans 9.14 says this. Paul, same guy that wrote Ephesians. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Because that's really the question. People are like, well, if you, if you make me do it, Lord, is it really fair? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says, a Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? So it's this question, right? Well, wait a minute. So if God predestined us to be sons, so does he just make us believe and then we don't have any choice in the matter? Well, no, because we'll see in just a minute in Ephesians. That's not what he does. Paul's response is, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? See, the debate with predestination and our comprehension of it, and by the way, as a side note, this is all in the framework of God's sovereign will, which is all will be carried out regardless of what we do, And the reality that there is, clearly taught in the Bible also, human responsibility. We're responsible for our own sin. We're responsible to believe. In the tension of that, I don't know that, humans do not have the capacity to understand or relieve that concept or fully understand it. We don't. That's why Paul says these things, where you end up is this. Okay, God is the Lord and I'm not. And I'm not going to understand all of these things. I'm going to receive it as it was given as a comfort to me that God says that he chose me from the beginning. We're going to get into why that is important. But the reality is that that is the truth of what is said. And so let's just take it as it's written. And we can argue with all those other things about, not argue, actually. By the way, as another side note on theological debates, if if I'm mostly concerned with my own glory and not the Lord's, I don't ever want to talk to you about what the Bible says. It's a nightmare. I've talked to way too many people who are way more concerned with being right than they are about being godly. So if your concern is the praise to the praise of God's glory, let's talk. If your concern is I want everything worked out in my brain so that it makes sense to me and I want you to tell me that I'm right, uh, let's go do something else. So having been predestined, I'm sure I didn't satisfy everybody's curiosity there and that's really not my point, but if you're stuck there, Just receive it as God's comfort, and we'll talk about it later. Having been predestined, how? According to the plan. God has a plan. He actually has a plan, and he's in the process of carrying out his plan. Who? The plan of him. What does this him do? He works out everything. How? In conformity with the purpose of his will. Let's just think about that for a minute. Let your wheels turn. 
We were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The reality is that God has a plan. He has a plan for your salvation. He has a plan for every single soul on planet earth that's ever existed or will ever exist. He has a plan to redeem his entire creation. And he's laid it out for us in the Bible. He's given us this great mystery of the gospel. And he's made it available to us. There's not, as Tripp talked about a couple weeks ago, not some kind of secret code you've got to decode in your Bible. Get your secret Bible decodering. It's just here. It's written for you to see it. And you keep reading the whole book and you're like, oh, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and he's going to redeem everything. Wow. He has a plan. And he is able, though, I have lots of plans, lots and lots of plans. I forget half the plans that I make, and I'm certainly not able to carry them out in conformity with the purpose of my will. Why? Because I'm not God. But God has all power. He is omnipotent. All power that exists is God. In order for him to have a plan and be able to carry it out, he must be all-powerful and all-knowing. He has to know all things. Because anyone who knew something that God did not know, they would have power over him. And then he would not have all power. For him to carry out, look at this, everything. What does everything mean? It means everything. He is able to carry out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We're going to talk about this in a little bit, about why this is such a comfort. But the reality that God is both omnipotent and omniscient to know all things and to have all power to carry out his will is meant to be an incredible comfort to us. Why does he do that in verse 12? In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, there's a distinction here. Paul, you're going to see this separation here between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians, which is one of the, the, one of the main topics of this book, because you had a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the first to believe the gospel. And so when he says, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jews, might be for the praise of his glory. And verse 13, and you also, the Gentiles, were included in Christ. So this idea of they heard first the hope of Christ, that their lives might be to the praise of his glory, that they've heard the gospels, we're going to see in a minute, they responded by faith, and that is to the praise of God's glory. And then the Gentiles are brought in. You also were included in Christ. How is it that someone is included in Christ? How is it that the Ephesians were brought in Christ? How is it that you and I are brought in Christ? How is it that the Afghanis are brought in Christ? Or the whoever, name your people. Here, here, here's how anybody is brought into Christ. In verse 13, you heard the word of truth, the logos of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So they first heard, they heard the gospel. And then what did they do? Having believed, you were marked with a seal. Remember the doorframe illustration? The only problem with unbelievers spiritually is that they're lost and they need to believe and be saved. So when we look at the church as really bad at looking at unbelievers and condemning them when they're condemned already and getting mad at them for acting like lost people, it's just sort of silly. It's like, why, are we, why do we freak out when lost people act lost? Like, just, why, what, the sinners are acting like sinners. Okay, like my dog digs holes in the ground because it's a dog. And he chews up, Madeline is a puppy that just chews up everything right now. Oh my gosh. Why? Because she's a puppy. So I should not be shocked when the dog is not sitting there doing calculus, right? That would shock me. If the dog, so if you see a, a, a lost person acting like a believer, that should shock us. Instead, we get shocked when they act like sinners. Well, 
They're supposed to act like sinners because they still are, and they have no capacity to live in the life of Christ. So they have to hear the word of truth. The gospel is true. It is based on Jesus came to be the fulfillment of grace and truth. The gospel is true because it happened because Jesus Christ really came. He was incarnate in the flesh and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead on the third day, defeating sin and death. He took care of not only the issue of our sin, the sins against a holy God, but he took care of the reality, as we'll see in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins. And he defeated death. So not only does he take out, to use a metaphor of a person who died of cancer, he takes out the cancer from them, what caused their death, sin. But then you just have a dead person with no cancer in them. Then he rose from the dead, and then the Holy Spirit imparts new life called regeneration to make a dead person spiritually alive. That is what Christ does. How is it that we receive that? Having believed. We heard the word of truth. See, all these passive verbs in here, right? Uh, having been predestined, uh, and then this idea of having heard the word of truth, it's a passive reception of something. But having believed is not a passive verb, it's an active verb. We are required to exercise faith, which means I require to trust that what the Bible says is true that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is who he says he is. That I am a person made in God's image, beloved by God, but my sin separates me from him because he is holy and righteous and perfect. And he designed us not to live in sin, but to live in fellowship with him. And that something in my spirit is broken because of that. When you're on the other side of this door, the spirit is calling you to the Father through the Son. And he draws you to himself through the gospel. Our responsibility, this is the human responsibility that everyone is responsible for, is believing the gospel. So the only question that you ever need to ask an unbeliever is not what way did they vote, but have they believed? And then you work all your effort toward that. You invite them over. You have hospitality. You bring them in. You learn about them. You talk about them. You, you love them where they're at. Why? So that you can Tell them the word of truth, and then you pray that they believe. That is the only thing. It is not to bring broken people into your house to make them feel better about themselves. Yes, that is good, sort of. It is to love them in the name of Jesus so that they can hear the gospel of truth and believe and be saved. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. So having believed, this is a past event that is a past and finished event. What happened? You were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal. So, ancient world, this is not necessarily a seal, like a signet ring on something. It's a bigger uh, concept than that. It was that uh, officials, government officials, religious officials would, would have a document, and that document would be sealed, uh, often with a wax seal, but it could be sealed in other methods. The point of it was that you had a document, and information was important, and it was vital, and so they would seal it, and it would prove, one, the authentication of it, that whoever says it, that, you know, whoever Caesar says this letter is from Caesar, that the seal authenticates that it's from who it says it's from. It also has to do with ownership, that the sender says, I, it is mine, I take responsibility for it. And it is also as an act of protection. So the seal brought authentication, ownership, and protection to a document. So that the contents of the document would make it from the sender to the receiver. That was the whole point of it. 
Because if you had someone who broke the seal, then you would have a breakdown in communication and there would be no way. They didn't have email back then. It was really hard. You couldn't pick up a phone and be like, hey, here I am in Rome. You guys there in, uh, in wherever you are in Jerusalem, um, I need you to, no. It, they had to, and the only way that that could happen was if it was authenticated with a seal. It goes from the sender to the receiver and it's guaranteed because of that seal. So a believer, when you believe, you were marked, back to the passive verb. I didn't mark myself. The Holy Spirit marked me with a seal. What is the seal of God? The promised Holy Spirit. Promised by who? Jesus in John 14 says, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send a helper to you, and he will be with you forever. Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit which is God himself, the third member of the Trinity. Every believer has been marked, and other passages talk about the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, but we have, been prom- we have and been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is he? In verse 14, he's many things, but one, he has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Deposit is the same word that you would use for a down payment, like you want something, and you say, okay, I'm going to give you earnest money. I'm going to give you part of the price of it. I don't have the full price, and so I'm going to pay you part of it, just like you do a down payment on a house. This is a $100,000 house. You don't have $100,000 just laying around, and so you're like, I've got five, and you give five to the bank. The bank says, great, and we're going to give you a mortgage for the rest, and then you get the house, and then you pay it off, right? So that's how a down payment works. In, in, in modern Greek, the word deposit is the word for an engagement ring. So an engagement ring, how does that work? You, you have the ring. Other girls, if you're, if you're single and he wants to get engaged and will not give you a ring, tell him no. Tell him to get me a ring. Why? Because you're worth it. That's why a man buys the woman a diamond because she is incalculably valuable to him. And so he buys the most precious stone on earth and he sets it on a ring and he spends way too much money than he has and he gives it to her and he says, you are priceless to me and I'm going to give you this ring as a promise that I will marry you. You see, there's a beauty to all those things and why we do these things. In a sense, the Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. And of course, that plays really well into the concept that Christ is the bridegroom and that the church is the bride of Christ and we're waiting for his return at the consummation of all things and that there'll be a wedding feast, all these beautiful metaphors that God has given us to help us comprehend the mystery of the church. He is a deposit. And what is he guaranteeing? Our inheritance. What is that inheritance? When we think of an inheritance earthly, what do we think of? Money, land, something I can sell, something I can use, right? Like if you, I don't know, you can have all kinds of things in inheritance. You can have letters and stuff like that. But most of us think of an inheritance, think of money. God doesn't need any money. Like he's not there going, oh, I hope you guys can balance the bills. He doesn't do that. What is the inheritance that we get? Well, it says until the redemption of those who are God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What is the greatest thing that God could give us? What is more valuable than any other thing ever in all of history and all of creation? Himself. He gives us himself. Mind-blowing. And so the Holy Spirit is this down payment saying, I don't even know what this means. I have no concept in my brain of thinking, what does it mean if the Holy Spirit is the down payment? Like, what's the payment in full? Has to be incomprehensibly wonderful. Like, my brain, in its fallen state, 
is incapable of comprehending the glorious wonder of my inheritance in Christ. I don't know exactly what it is, but it has to be greater than we are capable in all of the collective mental power of humanity, more than we're capable of comprehending. Because it's infinite, and we are finite, and by nature incapable of fully comprehending the infinite. He has guaranteed our inheritance until when? The redemption of those who are God's possession. We've already learned that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. But that redemption is not yet complete. Redemption and sanctification are tied up in, in a lot of these things and with justification, all these theological words. Justification meaning, okay, on this side of the ledger, I, have, uh, I was not holy or not righteous, but in Christ I've been declared righteous. That's justification. God says, you are now righteous because of my, what my son has done. You, are, you have put your faith in him, and I now take his righteousness and impute it, give it to you, so that I am now as righteous as Christ is. It's incredible. In that, I've been redeemed or forgiven from my sins, brought out of slavery. However, here I am. Ask any believer, and our redemption is not yet complete. We are awaiting the day when we're not only free from sin's penalty, but from its presence where sin will no longer be around. I can't even think about what that would be like other than awesome. To not have sin around anymore just destroys everything that's good. Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. Sin equals death in every single category. To be free from that, yeah, that would be great. That is the redemption of those who are God's possession. You are God's own possession. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. So what do we do with some of these things? Um, so four kind of encouragements I'm going to give you. They all not ended up being ours, so just forgive me. It's just how it fell into place. So I always end up with alliteration somehow or another. I tried with a, uh, what's it called, where you have a word that spells out something? Acronyms? I'm not good at those. Those are hard. So... Um, First is rest, that you can rest and rejoice in the plan and will of God. You can rest and rejoice in his plan. What does this mean? It says here that he is able to work out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. For those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, what does he say will happen? Well, you've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance to the redemption of those who are God's own possessions, that I can rest in my own life, that even though I am a colossal screw-up, that God will finish what he started because I'm his. Not because I'm great, but because I just believed. And I, I gave God the mustard seed of my faith and said the tiniest way that I can comprehend the gospel, I believe. And then he's in the process of redeeming us and he will not fail in his plan. Okay, so for me, that's one thing. Here's where it gets really hard. What if you have a spouse who's walking away from the Lord? Can you rest and rejoice in the plan and will of God for that person. That even their spouse is wayward, that God's plan for them, that he will carry it out and then you can trust him to do it. What if you have a wayward child? Can I trust in the Lord to carry out his plan for them? What if I'm sick and I'm broken? Can I trust that God will carry out his plan for me? What if I'm mired in, in depression? Can I trust that God will carry out his plan for me, and I'm here to tell you that you can rest and rejoice 
in he who carries out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That you can experience rest and peace because God is sovereign and he is in control. Because you know what, newsflash, we're not. I can't even make sure that both my shoes stay tight all day. I mean, it's ridiculous. We as humanity don't even know what all the species are on our planet. And yet, so much of humanity can point to that and say, there is no God. We've never even explored all the oceans or know how many stars are in the universe. But we can say that the one who made it doesn't exist. Arrogant. Anyway, but believers, this is not a promise for the unbeliever, by the way. All these promises are only for believers. So if you're hearing my voice right now and you've never believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, none of this is for you. It is only for a believer. But by believing on the name of Jesus, by crying out to him, saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Save me in your grace and in your love. I believe that what you say about yourself is true. And I repent for my sin and I turn to you to save me. Then the Spirit comes upon you, seals you, and all these things become true. That is the promise of the gospel. And the rest of it is working all this out and learning to surrender my own control and to rest and rejoice in the plan and the will of God. Second is this, to remember that God has not forgotten you. So when we want to do it out Joseph, um, we never, never forgot that we had a son in another country. It was a very long process for us where we tried to get him and couldn't. He talked about the plan in accordance with the plan of his, of, of his will. We had a plan to go adopt Joseph. We actually adopted him legally in the Congo before he could even walk or talk. He had no concept of what was going on, no concept of who we were. Someone had a picture in a little book that said, this isn't your mommy and daddy. They would tell him that in Lingala. He couldn't talk. But anyway, he saw our pictures. He didn't know what was going on. How could he know what was going on? He was six months old. We had a plan. Jenny and I knew that when we went to the Congo, we were going to have to get him, and we were, he was going to need a plane ticket. He would need a passport. He would need a visa. He would need a home to bring him to. All of these things that Jenny and I were working out in a plan in accordance with the power of our will. If you know the story with Joseph, almost nothing went to plan. But the plan of God was that Joseph would be our son. If you need the proof of it, he's sitting right back there. And if he walks in here and I said, who am I? He would either call me bruh if he was in a bad mood, or he would call me daddy. He was like, that's... That's my daddy. Because it was in accordance with the plan of God's will that he be our son. So Jenny and I didn't have to trust and that we could do everything right. But that God would carry out his plan if we would walk in submission to him. That's actually back to point one. This is back to point two. That God has not forgotten you. When Joseph was there, there was not a moment of any day that we forgot that he was our son. Never. There was a year period we were unable to get him. Every moment of every day we remembered. He was never forgotten. Was he brought home yet? No, and neither are you. We are here in what C.S. Lewis calls the shadow lands, this space between salvation and ultimate redemption. Guess what? Life in the shadow lands is hard. People still die. Everything doesn't go well. I cannot promise you that your life will be without pain. As a matter of fact, I can promise you that it will have lots of it. You are going to hurt. You're going to get sick. You are going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to live a life here and there will be pain and sin and suffering and death. How's about that? Put it on a t-shirt. Why is it a comfort that God doesn't forget me? 
because I can know that I'm not alone. You are not alone. And that God has not only left you with the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to calm you. How many of you have sensed the Spirit's calming comfort in your life? You don't have words for it. You, don't, you can't necessarily explain what it is or how it's happening. Maybe God brings a verse to you. He brings, he's here as our comforter. He himself is here with us. He has not forgotten us. He's also given us the church. He's given us a group of people, the community of the redeemed. And we're supposed to walk through this thing together because it helps when you're in the hospital that you have somebody that comes and sees you and says, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, I'm sorry. It helps when you have trouble in your life that we bring you a casserole. It matters. It matters that we gather together in life groups and, and pour out our hearts to each other and pray because we can exercise the reality that we're not forgotten by living like the redeemed and saying, in the midst of our trouble, God has not forgotten us. I'm going to live like it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask him for help. I'm going to gather in community. I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be challenged. I'm going to be edified. And I'm going to pray for those. And when I'm weak, they'll be strong for me. When they're strong, uh, when I'm weak, they'll be strong for me. God has not forgotten you. So remember that. I want to renew the hope for you that there will be one day when you will be free of sin. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, the story of his life is incredible. He wrote this about his experience regarding sin. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not yet what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God I am what I am. You do not have to be perfect to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, perfect people don't follow Jesus. Imperfect people do. There's only one perfect person, and that's Jesus. The perfection that we are striving for is this idea of maturity. I am going to grow in my knowledge and understanding of Christ. I'm going to walk more in submission to him every day as he, wa- as he continues out to work out his plan in my heart in conformity with the purpose of his will. And I can trust that one day I have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's own possession, and that's me. I'm God's own possession. You, as a believer, you are God's own possession. He says, you're mine, and no one can take you from his hand. You will one day be free of sin. You are now free from the penalty, but you will soon, one day, I don't know, soon, soon in like a biblical term, be free from the presence of it, and we will all rejoice in that day. It's the reason that when believers die, we are sad, but yet we rejoice because they are truly, finally, ultimately free and redeemed. And that is our great hope. So rest and rejoice in him. Remember that he has not forgotten you. Renew your hope that you'll one day be free of sin. The reason that's important is this. If you are caught and entangled in sin right now, that is not who you are. 
Your sin does not define you. So you say, well, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a porn addict, or I'm a meth addict. I think this is all about addiction. Okay, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm an adulterer. I'm a, no, you're not. Because that's not what this says. This says that you're a child of God. This says that you're blameless, predestined, adopted, that you've been given a redemption, forgiveness. You've been lavished with all understanding. This says that you're his child. That's who you are. You've been predestined. You've been chosen. So live like it. Do not let your sin define you. God doesn't. He defines you by being in Christ. So if you're in Christ, live like it. Quit living like you're over here, con- totally enraptured, and, 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 in co- and your sin has, uh, is overwhelmed and you can do nothing about it. You know what? You can't. But who can? The Holy Spirit who indwells you. If you're a believer, trust that he's with you and that the definition of who you are will be, uh, is, is delineated by the one who defines who you are, and that is Christ, and that he will carry it out. You will one day be free from sin, but until the day that you're free from sin, you must fight it. Fight it. Kill it. Hate it. Go after it. And when you see it in people that you love, go after it there too. And when you see it in your own heart, go after it. Be tenacious and don't give up because that's not who you are. And finally this. We can rejoice that we can live a life to the praise of his glory. Do you know that? I mean, if God can take an idiot like me, and that my life can be to the praise of his glory? There ain't nobody that he can't use. This guy that wrote these words, he was a slave trader. He bought and sold people. It's like the epitome of evil. And yet God redeemed him so that he wrote a song that we all sing today, Amazing Grace, that he saved a wretch like me. And we can live a life to the praise of his glory. Do you understand that? That God can look at your life and when he brings you home to him, he will look at you and say, your life was lived to the praise of my glory. And that here on earth today, we can live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We can walk as a child of light as Ephesians will talk about. We'll probably get to it like in two years, but that life, the life that you can live right now, how you go through cancer treatment, how you go through the situation with your spouse, how you go through dealing with financial difficulty, how you deal with your mean neighbor, how you deal with the, the, the crushing blows of divorce, how you deal with people who, are, uh, who have lied to you, who have manipulated you, and who have sinned against you, how you deal with that can be to the praise of God's glory. Or it can't. Honestly, you have a choice to make. How are you going to live the life that Christ has given you? Are you going to live it in him or are you going to live it some other way? Because the only way that life can be to the praise of God's glory is if it's lived in surrendered, joyful dependence upon the one who saved you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for incredible truth that you've given us today. We thank you for your great grace that you've given us, that you've redeemed us, freed us from the power of sin, help us live like it. As we respond to you in worship, Lord Jesus, help us to just pour our heart out to you. Sink these truths into our heart and into our minds, that we would be encouraged and empowered to do something about it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, that this would not be the only time that we feast in your word this week, Lord, but that we would come to you weary, we would come to you joyfully, we would come to you broken or repaired, 
and experience the life that you have given us in Christ and that we would experience the great blessings that you've given us in him. We would remember who we are. We would remember that we can live a life to the praise of your glory, that we can rest and rejoice in your great plan. Help us to do this, Lord Jesus. Help us commit and resolve to that as we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this song together. Um, guys in the band, I'm going to start with something just a little different, and then we'll get to the song as we planned. Daniel, if you can put the second verse up there for a moment. just want to concentrate on something that's, that's in this for a moment before we do the song as per usual. Your promise never changes and this hope will never fade. It's kept in heaven for me until the end of days. My heart remains filled with the hope that is living. Sing that again, your promise. Your promise never changes and this hope will never fade. It's kept in heaven for me until the end of days. My heart remains filled with the hope that is living. One more time. Your promise never changes. Your promise never changes and this hope will never fade. It's kept in heaven for me until the end of days. My heart remains filled with the hope that is Amen. 
truth of God's word, okay? You have a hope. This song was, it is a living hope because the spirit of all life is in you. So rest in him, remember who you are, and then this week, go in hope and peace.